Section 12 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1893 to 1896. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Grover, Cleveland, December 7, 1896, Part 3. The total Indian population of the United States is 177,235, according to a census made in 1895, exclusive of those within the state of New York and those comprising the five civilized tribes. Of this number, there are approximately 38,000 children of school age. During the year, 23,393 of these were enrolled in schools. The progress which has attended recent efforts to extend Indian school facilities and the anticipation of continued liberal appropriations to that end cannot fail to afford the utmost satisfaction to those who believe that the education of Indian children is a prime factor in the accomplishment of Indian civilization. It may be said in general terms that in every particular the improvement of the Indians under government care has been most marked and encouraging. The Secretary, the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, and the agents having charge of Indians, to whom allotments have been made, strongly urge the passage of a law prohibiting the sale of liquor to all allottees who have taken their lands in severalty. I earnestly join in this recommendation and venture to express the hope that the Indian may be speedily protected against this greatest of all obstacles to his well-being and advancement. The condition of affairs among the five civilized tribes who occupy large tracts of land in the Indian territory and who have governments of their own has assumed such an aspect as to render it almost indispensable that there should be an entire change in the relations of these Indians to the general government. This seems to be necessary in furtherance of their own interests, as well as for the protection of non-Indian residents in their territory. A commission organized and empowered under several recent laws is now negotiating with these Indians for the relinquishment of their courts and the division of their common lands in severalty, and are aiding in the settlement of the troublesome question of tribal membership. The reception of their first proffers of negotiation was not encouraging, but through patience and such conduct on their part as demonstrated that their intentions were friendly, and in the interest of the tribes, the prospect of success has become more promising. The effort should be to save these Indians from the consequences of their own mistakes and improvidence, and to secure to the real Indian his rights as against intruders and professed friends who profit by his retrogression. A change is also needed to protect life and property through the operation of courts conducted according to strict justice, and strong enough to enforce their mandates. As a sincere friend of the Indian, 
I am exceedingly anxious that these reforms should be accomplished with the consent and aid of the tribes, and that no necessity may be presented for radical or drastic legislation. I hope, therefore, that the Commission now conducting negotiations will soon be able to report that progress has been made toward a friendly adjustment of existing difficulties. It appears that a very valuable deposit of gilsonite, or asphaltum, has been found on the reservation in Utah occupied by the Uncomfrage Ute Indians. Every consideration of care for the public interest and every sensible business reason dictate such management or disposal of this important source of public revenue as will accept it from the general rules and incidents attending the ordinary disposition of public lands, and secure to the government a fair share, at least, of its advantages, in place of its transfer for a nominal sum to interested individuals. I endorse the recommendation made by the present Secretary of the Interior, as well as his predecessor, that a permanent commission, consisting of three members, one of whom shall be an army officer, be created to perform the duties now devolving upon the Commissioner and Assistant Commissioner of Indian Affairs. The management of the Bureau involves such numerous and diverse details, and the advantages of an uninterrupted policy are so apparent that I hope the change suggested will meet the approval of the Congress. The diminution of our enormous pension roll and the decrease of pension expenditure, which have been so often confidently foretold, still fail in material realization. The number of pensioners on the polls at the close of the fiscal year ended June 30, 1896, was 970,678. This is the largest number ever reported. The amount paid exclusively for pensions during the year was $138,214,761.94, a slight decrease from that of the preceding year. While the total expenditures on account of pensions, including the cost of maintaining the department and expenses attending pension distribution, amounted to $142,206,550.59, or within every small fraction of one-third of the entire expense of supporting the government during the same year. The number of new pension certificates issued was 90,640. Of these, 40,374 represent original allowances of claims and 15,878 increases of existing pensions. The number of persons receiving pensions from the United States but residing in foreign countries at the close of the last fiscal year was 3,781, and the amount paid to them during the year was $582,735.38. 
the sum appropriated for the payment of pensions for the current fiscal year ending june thirtieth eighteen ninety seven is one hundred and forty million dollars and for the succeeding year it is estimated that the same amount will be necessary the commissioner of pensions reports that during the last fiscal year three hundred and thirty-nine indictments were found against violators of the pension laws upon these indictments one hundred and sixty-seven convictions resulted in my opinion based upon such statements as these and much other information and observation the abuses which have been allowed to creep into our pension system have done incalculable harm in demoralizing our people and undermining good citizenship i have endeavored within my sphere of official duty to protect our pension roll and make it what it should be a roll of honor containing the names of those disabled in their country's service and worthy of their country's affectionate remembrance when i have seen those who pose as the soldier's friends active and alert in urging greater laxity and more reckless pension expenditure while nursing selfish schemes i have deprecated the approach of a situation when necessary retrenchment and enforced economy may lead to an attack upon pension abuses so determined as to overlook the discrimination due to those who worthy of a nation's care ought to live and die under the protection of a nation's gratitude the secretary calls attention to the public interests involved in an adjustment of the obligations of the pacific railroads to the government i deem it to be an important duty to especially present this subject to the consideration of the congress on january one eighteen ninety seven with the amount already matured more than thirteen million dollars of the principal of the subsidy bonds issued by the united states in aid of the construction of the union pacific railway including its kansas line and more than six million dollars of like bonds issued in aid of the central pacific railroad including those issued to the western pacific railroad company will have fallen due and been paid or must on that day be paid by the government without any reference to the application of the sinking fund now in the treasury this will create such a default on the part of those companies to the government as will give it the right to at once institute proceedings to foreclose its mortgage lien in addition to this indebtedness which will be due january one eighteen ninety seven there will mature between that date and january one eighteen ninety nine the remaining principal of such subsidy bonds which must also be met by the government these amount to more than twenty million dollars on account of the union pacific lines and exceed twenty one million dollars on account of the central pacific lines the situation of these roads and the condition of their indebtedness to the government have been fully set forth in the reports of various committees to the present and prior congresses and as early as eighteen eighty seven they were thoroughly examined by a special commission appointed 
pursuant to an act of Congress. The considerations requiring an adjustment of the government's relations to the companies have been clearly presented, and the conclusion reached with practical uniformity that if these relations are not terminated, they should be revised upon a basis securing their safe continuance. Under Section 4 of the Act of Congress, passed March 3, 1887, the President is charged with the duty, in the event that any mortgage or other encumbrance paramount to the interest of the United States in the property of the Pacific Railroads should exist, and be lawfully liable to be enforced, to direct the action of the Department of Treasury and of Justice in the protection of the interest of the United States, by redemption or through judicial proceedings, including foreclosures of the government liens. In view of the fact that the Congress has, for a number of years, almost constantly had under consideration various plans for dealing with the conditions existing between these roads and the government, I have thus far felt justified in withholding action under the statute above mentioned. In the case of the Union Pacific Company, however, the situation has become especially and immediately urgent. Proceedings have been instituted to foreclose a first mortgage upon those aided parts of the main lines, upon which the government holds a second and subordinate mortgage lien. In consequence of those proceedings and increasing complications, added to the default occurring on the first day of January 1897, a condition will be presented at that date, so far as this company is concerned, that must emphasize the mandate of the Act of 1887 and give to executive duty under its provisions a more imperative aspect. Therefore, Unless Congress shall otherwise direct, or shall have previously determined upon a different solution of the problem, there will hardly appear to exist any reason for delaying, beyond the date of the default above mentioned, such executive action as will promise to subserve the public interests and save the government from the loss threatened by further inaction. The Department of Agriculture is so intimately related to the welfare of our people and the prosperity of our nation that it should constantly receive the care and encouragement of the government. From small beginnings, it has grown to be the center of agricultural intelligence and the source of aid and encouragement to agricultural efforts. Large sums of money are annually appropriated for the maintenance of this department and it must be confessed that the legislation relating to it has not always been directly in the interest of practical farming, or properly guarded against waste and extravagance. So far, however, as public money has been appropriated fairly and sensibly to help those who actually till the soil, no expenditure has been more profitably made or more generally approved by the people. Under the present management of the department, its usefulness has been enhanced in every direction, and at the same time strict economy has been enforced to the utmost extent permitted by congressional action. From the report of the Secretary, it appears that, through careful and prudent financial management, 
he has annually saved a large sum from his appropriations aggregating during his incumbency and up to the close of the present fiscal year nearly one-fifth of the entire amount appropriated these results have been accomplished by a conscientious study of the real needs of the farmer and such a regard for economy as the genuine farmer ought to appreciate supplemented by a rigid adherence to civil service methods in a department which should be conducted in the interest of agricultural instead of partisan politics the secretary reports that the value of our exports of farm products during the last fiscal year amounted to five hundred and seventy million dollars an increase of seventeen million dollars over those of the year immediately preceding this statement is not the less welcome because of the fact that notwithstanding such increase the proportion of exported agricultural products to our total exports of all descriptions fell off during the year the benefits of an increase in agricultural exports being assured the decrease in its proportion to our total exports is the more gratifying when we consider that it is owing to the fact that such total exports for the year increased more than seventy five million dollars the large and increasing exportation of our agricultural products suggests the great usefulness of the organization lately established in the department for the purpose of giving to those engaged in farming pursuits reliable information concerning the condition needs and advantages of different foreign markets inasmuch as the success of the farmer depends upon the advantageous sale of his products and inasmuch as foreign markets must largely be the destination of such products it is quite apparent that a knowledge of the conditions and wants that affect those markets ought to result in sowing more intelligently and reaping with a better promise of profit such information points out the way to a prudent foresight in the selection and cultivation of crops and to release from the bondage of unreasoning monotony of production a glutted and depressed market and constantly recurring unprofitable toil in my opinion the gratuitous distribution of seeds by the department as at present conducted ought to be discontinued no one can read the statement of the secretary on this subject and doubt the extravagance and questionable results of this practice the professed friends of the farmer and certainly the farmers themselves are naturally expected to be willing to rid a department devoted to the promotion of farming interests of a feature which tends so much to its discredit the weather bureau now attached to the department of agriculture has continued to extend its sphere of usefulness and by an uninterrupted improvement in the accuracy of its forecasts has greatly increased its efficiency as an aid and protection to all whose occupations are related to weather conditions omitting further reference to the operations of the department i commend the secretary's report and the suggestions it contains to the careful consideration of the congress
the progress made in civil service reform furnishes a cause for the utmost congratulation. It has survived the doubts of its friends, as well as the rancor of its enemies, and has gained a permanent place among the agencies destined to cleanse our politics and to improve, economize, and elevate the public service. There are now in the competitive classified service upward of 84,000 places, more than half of these having been included from time to time since March 4, 1893. A most radical and sweeping extension was made by executive order dated the 6th day of May, 1896, and if fourth-class postmasterships are not included in the statement, it may be said that practically all positions contemplated by the civil service law are now classified. Abundant reasons exist for including these postmasterships. Based upon economy, improved service, and the peace and quiet of neighborhoods. If, however, obstacles prevent such action at present, I earnestly hope that Congress will, without increasing post office appropriations, so adjust them as to permit improper cases a consolidation of these post offices. To the end that through this process the result desired may to a limited extent be accomplished. The civil service rules, as amended during the last year, provide for a sensible and uniform method of promotion, basing eligibility to better positions upon demonstrated efficiency and faithfulness. The absence of fixed rules on this subject has been an infirmity in the system more and more apparent as its other benefits have been better appreciated. The advantages of civil service methods in their business aspects are too well understood to require argument. Their application has become a necessity to the executive work of the government, but those who gain positions through the operation of these methods should be made to understand that the nonpartisan scheme through which they receive their appointments demands from them by way of reciprocity nonpartisan and faithful performance of duty under every administration and cheerful fidelity to every chief. While they should be encouraged to decently exercise their right of citizenship and to support through their suffrages the political beliefs they honestly profess, the noisy, pestilent, and partisan employee who loves political turmoil and contention, or who renders lax and grudging service to an administration not presenting his political views, should be promptly and fearlessly dealt with, in such a way as to furnish a warning to others who may be likewise disposed. The annual report of the commissioners will be duly transmitted, and I commend the important matter they have in charge to the careful consideration of the Congress. The Interstate Commerce Commission has during the last year supplied abundant evidence of its usefulness and the importance of the work committed to its charge. Public transportation is a universal necessity, 
and the question of just and reasonable charges therefore has become of vital importance not only to shippers and carriers but also to the vast multitude of producers and consumers the justice and equity of the principles embodied in the existing law passed for the purpose of regulating these charges are everywhere conceded and there appears to be no question that the policy thus entered upon has a permanent place in our legislation as the present statute when enacted was in the nature of the case more or less tentative and experimental it was hardly expected to supply a complete and adequate system while its wholesome effects are manifest and have amply justified its enactment it is evident that all desired reforms in transportation methods have not been fully accomplished in view of the judicial interpretation which some provisions of this statute have received and the defects disclosed by the efforts made for its enforcement its revision and amendment appears to be essential to the end that it may more effectually reach the evils designed to be corrected i hope the recommendations of the commission upon this subject will be promptly and favorably considered by congress i desire to recur to the statements elsewhere made concerning the government's receipts and expenditures for the purpose of venturing upon some suggestions touching our present tariff law and its operation the statute took effect on the twenty eighth day of august eighteen ninety four whatever may be its shortcomings as a complete measure of tariff reform it must be conceded that it has opened the way to a freer and greater exchange of commodities between us and other countries and thus furnished a wider market for our products and manufactures the only entire fiscal year during which this law has been in force ended on the thirtieth day of june eighteen ninety six in that year our imports increased over those of the previous year more than six million five hundred thousand dollars while the value of the domestic products we exported and which found markets abroad was nearly seventy million dollars more than during the preceding year to those who insist that the cost to our people of articles coming to them from abroad for their needful use should only be increased through tariff charges to an extent necessary to meet the expenses of the government as well as those who claim that tariff charges may be laid upon such articles beyond the necessities of government revenue and with the additional purpose of so increasing their price in our markets as to give american manufacturers and producers better and more profitable opportunities must agree that our tariff laws are only primarily justified as sources of revenue to enable the government to meet the necessary expenses of its maintenance considered as to its efficiency in this aspect the present law can by no means fall under just condemnation during the only complete fiscal year of its operation it has yielded nearly eight million dollars more revenue than was received from tariff duties in the preceding year there was nevertheless a deficit between our receipts and expenditures of a little more than twenty five million dollars this however was not unexpected 
the situation was such in december last seven months before the close of the fiscal year that the secretary of the treasury foretold a deficiency of seventeen million dollars the great and increasing apprehension and timidity in business circles and the depression in all activities intervening since that time resulting from causes perfectly well understood and entirely disconnected with our tariff law or its operation seriously checked the imports we would have otherwise received and readily account for the difference between this estimate of the secretary and the actual deficiency as well as for a continued deficit indeed it must be confessed that we could hardly have had a more unfavorable period than the last two years for the collection of tariff revenue we cannot reasonably hope that our recuperation from this business depression will be sudden but it has already set in with a promise of acceleration and continuance i believe our present tariff law if allowed a fair opportunity will in the near future yield a revenue which with reasonably economical expenditures will overcome all deficiencies in the meantime no deficit that has occurred or may occur need excite or disturb us to meet any such deficit we have in the treasury in addition to a gold reserve of one hundred millions a surplus of more than one hundred and twenty eight million dollars applicable to the payment of the expenses of the government and which must unless expended for that purpose remain a useless hoard or if not extravagantly wasted must in any event be perverted from the purpose of its exaction from our people the payment therefore of any deficiency in the revenue from this fund is nothing more than its proper and legitimate use the government thus supplying a surplus fortunately in its treasury to the payment of expenses not met by its current revenues is not at all to be likened to a man living beyond his income and thus incurring debt or encroaching on his principal it is not one of the functions of our government to accumulate and make additions to a fund not needed for immediate expenditure with individuals it is the chief object of struggle and effort the application of an accumulated fund by the government to the payment of its running expenses is a duty an individual living beyond his income and embarrassing himself with debt or drawing upon his accumulated fund of principal is either unfortunate or improvident the distinction is between a government charged with the duty of expending for the benefit of the people and for proper purposes all the money it receives from any source and the individual who is expected to manifest a natural desire to avoid debt or to accumulate as much as possible and to live within the income derived from such accumulations to the end that they may be increased or at least remain unimpaired for the future use and enjoyment of himself or the objects of his love and affection who may survive him it is immeasurably better to appropriate our surplus 
to the payment of justifiable expenses than to allow it to become an invitation to reckless appropriations and extravagant expenditures. I suppose it will not be denied that under the present law our people obtain the necessities of a comfortable existence at a cheaper rate than formerly. This is a matter of supreme importance, since it is the palpable duty of every just government to make the burdens of taxation as light as possible. The people should not be required to relinquish this privilege of cheaper living except under the stress of their government's necessity made plainly manifest. This reference to the condition and prospects of our revenues naturally suggests an allusion to the weakness and vices of our financial methods. They have been frequently pressed upon the attention of Congress in previous executive communications, and the inevitable danger of their continued toleration pointed out. Without now repeating these details, I cannot refrain from again earnestly presenting the necessity of the prompt reform of a system opposed to every rule of sound finance, and shown by experience, to be fraught with the gravest peril and perplexity. The terrible civil war which shook the foundations of our government more than thirty years ago brought in its train the destruction of property, the wasting of our country's substance, and the estrangement of brethren. These are now past and forgotten. Even the distressing loss of life the conflict entailed is but a sacred memory which fosters patriotic sentiment and keeps alive a tender regard for those who nobly died. And yet there remains with us today, in full strength and activity, as an incident of that tremendous struggle, a feature of its financial necessities not only unsuited to our present circumstances, but manifestly a disturbing menace to business security and an ever-present agent of monetary distress. Because we may be enjoying a temporary relief from its depressing influence, this should not lull us into a false security, nor lead us to forget the suddenness of past visitations. I am more convinced than ever that we can have no assured financial peace and safety until the government currency obligations upon which gold may be demanded from the Treasury are withdrawn from circulation and cancelled. This might be done, as have been heretofore recommended, by their exchange for long-term bonds bearing a low rate of interest or by their redemption with the proceeds of such bonds. Even if only the United States notes known as greenbacks were thus retired, it is probable that the Treasury notes issued in payment of silver purchases under the Act of July 14, 1890, now paid in gold when demanded, would not create much disturbance, as they might from time to time, when received in the Treasury by redemption in gold or otherwise, be gradually and prudently replaced by silver coin. This plan, of issuing bonds for the purpose of redemption, certainly appears to be the most effective and direct path to the needed reform. 
In default of this, however, it would be a step in the right direction if currency obligations redeemable in gold whenever so redeemed should be cancelled instead of being reissued. This operation would be a slow remedy, but it would improve present conditions. National banks should redeem their own notes. They should be allowed to issue circulation to the par value of bonds deposited as security for its redemption, and the tax on their circulation should be reduced to one-fourth of one percent. In considering projects for the retirement of United States notes and Treasury notes issued under the law of 1890, I am of the opinion that we have placed too much stress upon the danger of contracting the currency and have calculated too little upon the gold that would be added to our circulation if invited to us by better and safer financial methods. It is not so much a contraction of our currency that should be avoided as its unequal distribution. This might be obviated, and any fear of harmful contraction at the same time removed, by allowing the organization of smaller banks and in less populous communities than are now permitted, and also authorizing existing banks to establish branches in small communities under proper restrictions. The entire case may be presented by the statement that the day of sensible and sound financial methods will not dawn upon us until our government abandons the banking business and the accumulation of funds and confines its monetary operations to the receipt of the money contributed by the people for its support and to the expenditure of such money for the people's benefit. Our business interests and all good citizens long for rest from feverish agitation and the inauguration by the government of a reformed financial policy which will encourage enterprise and make certain the rewards of labor and industry. Another topic in which our people rightfully take a deep interest may be here briefly considered. I refer to the existence of trusts and other huge aggregations of capital, the object of which is to secure the monopoly of some particular branch of trade, industry, or commerce, and to stifle wholesome competition. When these are defended, it is usually on the ground that, though they increase profits, they also reduce prices, and thus may benefit the public. It must be remembered, however, that a reduction of prices to the people is not one of the real objects of these organizations, nor is their tendency necessarily in that direction. If it occurs in a particular case, it is only because it accords with the purposes or interests of those managing the scheme. Such occasional results fall far short of compensating the palpable evils charged to the account of trusts and monopolies. Their tendency is to crush out individual independence and to hinder or prevent the free use of human faculties and the full development of human character. Through them, the farmer, the artisan, and the small trader is in danger of dislodgment from the proud position of being his own master, watchful of all that touches his country's prosperity, in which he has an individual lot, 
and interested in all that affects the advantages of business of which he is a factor to be relegated to the level of a mere appurtenance to a great machine with little free will with no duty but that of passive obedience and with little hope or opportunity of rising in the scale of responsible and helpful citizenship to the instinctive belief that such is the inevitable trend of trusts and monopolies is due the widespread and deep-seated popular aversion in which they are held and the not unreasonable insistence that whatever may be their incidental economic advantages their general effect upon personal character prospects and usefulness cannot be otherwise than injurious though congress has attempted to deal with this matter by legislation the laws passed for that purpose thus far have proved ineffective not because of any lack of disposition or attempt to enforce them but simply because the laws themselves as interpreted by the courts do not reach the difficulty if the insufficiencies of existing laws can be remedied by further legislation it should be done the fact must be recognized however that all federal legislation on this subject may fall short of its purpose because of inherent obstacles and also because of the complex character of our governmental system which while making the federal authority supreme within its sphere has carefully limited that sphere by meets and bounds that cannot be transgressed the decision of our highest court on this precise question renders it quite doubtful whether the evils of trusts and monopolies can be adequately treated through federal action unless they seek directly and purposely to include in their objects transportation or intercourse between states or between the united states and foreign countries it does not follow however that this is the limit of the remedy that may be applied even though it may be found that federal authority is not broad enough to fully reach the case it can be no doubt of the power of the several states to act effectively in their premises and there should be no reason to doubt their willingness to judiciously exercise such power in concluding this communication its last words shall be an appeal to the congress for the most rigid economy in the expenditure of the money it holds in trust for the people the way to perplexing extravagance is easy but a return to frugality is difficult when however it is considered that those who bear the burdens of taxation have no guarantee of honest care save in the fidelity of their public servants the duty of all possible retrenchment is plainly manifest when our differences are forgotten and our contests of political opinion are no longer remembered nothing in the retrospect of our public service will be as fortunate and comforting as the recollection of official duty well performed and the memory of a constant devotion to the interests of our confiding fellow countrymen grover cleveland december seventh eighteen ninety six end of state of the union addresses by united states presidents eighteen ninety three to eighteen ninety six